I was in Columbus, Ohio a few weeks ago. Super hot. The dog days of summer. Diane Rambo was going to show me around the short north district. So we picked up an Uber in front of her office. Her office is in a former fire station. So we're in our Uber and we're going from the neighborhood where the office is, which is called the German Village, to Short North. Do you live in, in Short North? No, I live in um, a little area called Old Town East, which is a transitional downtown neighborhood. Um, it's like kind of uh, Victorian and it's really truly in the downtown. Um, but, you know, Short North is kind of my mall. Um, I stop at Short North quite often like picking my daughter up from school and needing to stop somewhere to get a quick salad or something short north tends to be a frequent shopping experience in our family. We use it for, you know, regular regular shopping. I'm originally from the Cleveland area, but I came here to go to Columbus College of Art and Design, and I liked the downtown, although it was quite different like 30 years ago. Um, you went to the Short North, there were certain retailers there that you'd want to go down and, and visit. There were certain bars um, where you'd meet people, but it was definitely one of those places where you, uh, you know, didn't park very far away or leave your car for a long period of time. Um, it was really the place where you could, um, you know, engage in things that were um, illegal. And uh, and so Short North was sort of known for that uh, as an area of town. But still there was that sort of on-trend, you know, the idea that where the artists go um, eventually becomes popular with everybody else. You know, it used to be like really affordable apartments and, you know, it's now become the highest rent in Columbus. Uh, the housing market, the stock is very limited. The Short North is an arts, shopping, and dining hotspot just north of downtown Columbus. Diane is a creative director at Big Red Rooster, which is a JLL company. They're an experienced design firm. I'd been talking with the team at Big Red Rooster about how traditional suburban mall retailers can be made to work in an urban city setting. Diane was taking me to one of her favorite stores to show me a living case study. You're listening to Where We Buy, the show about the things we buy and the places we buy them. My name is James Cook, and I research retail and real estate for JLL. This is the show where we talk with retail experts and we visit shopping spots across the nation. We're here at Anthropology now. Okay, excellent. Today, we're going to Columbus, Ohio to answer the question, how do retailers move from the mall to Main Street? We kind of crossed under this arch that says Short North, and we got dropped off right here um, in front of the Anthropology. So this is one of how many national um, retail chains have found a home here in, in the Short North? Very few. It's really, um, these are mostly local businesses, which makes it unique. Um, but I do think we have room for more national chains. We have seen that most retailers are looking to have a presence on Main Street. They're seeing that their, their consumers uh, are moving and, uh, and they're moving um, into new urbanized areas and they want to be there. They want to be close to their consumers. Earlier that morning, I talked with Josh Broll. Josh is an SVP at Big Red Rooster. So Josh, um, 
I'm a retailer, you know, I've got a store out in the suburbs, now I want to move into the city. What what do I have to think about specifically? What's different? What what changes do I have to make? You got to make sure your product mix uh, is right uh, for your for your local uh, consumers because in those uh, new urbanized areas, um, you're going to need to make sure you address uh, those needs directly. Think about things like transportation and how are those people arriving at the store? How are they leaving the store? And how much product can they take with them? Do they need additional delivery services? Uh, to to connect uh, the product that's in the store um, with uh, their residents. Their residents could be in a mixed-use environment and very close by. It could be pedestrian and it it could be vehicular. It could be mass transit. When we're working with a retailer to translate their brand from a mall-based format to a Main Street format, some of the classic retail design challenges still exist. I also talked with Vicki Eichelberger. She's a managing director at Big Red Rooster. In a mall-based concept, we're thinking about how can we use our storefront to pull people out of the mallway and drive them across the lease line. When we take that retailer to Main Street, we're thinking in... In the exact same terms, how can we create some excitement and something dynamic on the exterior that pulls people off of the street and into the store? That sense of uh, wonder and that sense of uh, storytelling is still really critical, whether you're a mall-based retailer or a Main Street-based retailer. The nuances uh, of the storefront are different, but the the, the, um, nature and the dynamics of communicating and captivating that potential shopper are still the same. You have to think about how your windows and your entrance can work as hard as possible for you to convey what's the excitement that's going on in the store. Uh, So a lease line in a mall-based store versus a retail storefront on Main Street – is, is quite different in some ways, but ultimately it's it's the it's the window into your world. It's the window into your product assortment and how you program that to captivate uh, and drive traffic into your store. Um, the science behind that is very very similar. We were walking down uh, a typical shopping street, uh, Main Street, and your and your a retailer catches your eye when you step right inside of the door. Your Taking in the total offer of that retailer, that we call the decompression zone. So allowing the shopper to orient to the space, orient to the assortment, and the the sight lines within the store are really key in that regard. So if you have a small footprint, which mainly we're um, seeing in in these urban locations, how can we leverage the walls, uh, for instance, to work harder for us so that we can create these moments and these focals when we step into the store? Now, anthropology, which is very near and dear to my heart because I love the store, um, but they're a natural because they do the right thing in retail to be on Main Street. They they are one of the few people who actually have um, amazing visual merchandising, and they do programs. They actually have open nights. I don't know if you've ever come to any of these, but um, they have open nights you sign up for, and you can come help make the props. I've done it several times. Uh, so you come in. They have wine and cheese and all kinds of little snacks and you sit and so if you look at the windows today it's like a, a folded fan paper and so if you'd come in they'd be giving you the paper and you'd be folding the fans and they'd tell you how to rivet it and everything having no idea what your ultimate um, piece is going to be they just have you do parts 
there, but each store has a regional director for their visual, and it's it's one of the reasons they always win all the visual awards. They're they're just amazing people, but but I would say a store that's in a mall typically does not pay this kind of attention to visual merchandising, and anthropology of course does in and it goes throughout their store so we can look at that but the idea that they're on main street and they have floor to ceiling windows and they're basically showing off what their fall collection looks like and you're just like oh my god i have to go into that store and they do it every time and so it's an easy way to part with your money <laughs> because they they make it an experience before i even go in one of the big differences is it's two floors um obviously just like you know any city you only have so much of a floor plan, so um, the idea that you need to uh, make it stacked, and we all know from retail that it's hard to get people to move up. One of the smart things Anthropology did here and what they're famous for is their sale room, so it's upstairs. So if you're a frequent shopper, <laughs> you know the sales are upstairs, so you're going to make it up there, but you're going to browse. You always walk into the new pieces and see everything that you know they want you to see for fall like this gorgeous black and white skirt um, and then you're sort of attracted but at the same time you're like oh, I gotta run up and check out the sales. And Main Street stores also need a high degree of flexibility in their design because unlike mall stores where there can be more consistency of space Main Street locations can vary dramatically from a, from a renovated center to a several hundred year old building. When we move into uh, more urban locations on Main Street, we have to adjust um, our, our floor plans uh, to accommodate the local conditions. This may, uh, this may cause us to have uh, a back of house uh, or storeroom that uh, spans several floors instead of traditionally just being on one floor. It may, for a restaurant, it may mean that the, the kitchen is split between two levels and part of the kitchen is in the basement uh, to accommodate the, the space required. Our office is in a historic area called German Village, and our Starbucks is in an amazing old space. But when they receive an order, I've seen many times uh, our local Starbucks folks trying to take down uh, the product uh, down a set of steps that's probably 200 years old into a little stone sort of cave that is their storeroom. And so um, I think in urban areas, um, there's so many interesting dynamics to the store operation that um, probably go unnoticed to the average customer. Oftentimes, the stores are going to be smaller every time that floor space needs to be highly, highly productive. Uh, quite simply, the, the rents are going to be higher. The operating costs are going to be higher. So we need to make sure that those stores are going to um, have the operational uh, uh, efficiency uh, to make sure that they can accommodate those higher costs. They use their stairwell well. They always set an outfit there, and it's always got something enticing that makes you want to go up and look at it. Um, fitting rooms are upstairs, so again, even if I found something down here, I've got to go up and try it on. So it's very, very smart. Is there anything we should check out upstairs? I don't know. Maybe we should look at the sale. Okay, yeah, let's check out the sale room. <laughs> here's here's the famous sale area. So it's really well done. You can see it's it feels as good as the rest of the store. So even the idea that they have these you know, sewn sale signs that, so it has the same kind of bohemian feel and then all their stuff. So you're like, well, great, let's go look and see what they've got, you know. And when we think about designing a new prototype or a store of the future, we think about 
one, how to future-proof the work that we're doing, but two, how to translate that across all of their uh, formats and footprints. So uh, to do that, we create uh, a scalable, flexible, modular kit of parts that uh, comprises of all the key experience zones within a store. So we think about what does decompression look like, whether we're scaling it up for a flagship experience or pulling it down to a very small form format or a footprint. What does the cash wrap look like? What do fitting rooms look like? Um, How do we create a scalable fixturing package that can evolve and grow based on seasonality and regionality of product assortment? Each of those experience zones is really designed to captivate and motivate the shopper to continue on their journey. We create focals or strike zones with product and storytelling to move the shopper intuitively through the space, unveiling the range of assortment. And through intuitive merchandising, we're able to drive cross-sell, increase basket size, and really uh, ensure that the shopper has a successful uh, event inside the store. We create personas. So, uh, or muses, some of our clients call them muses. So it's uh, a capture of who is their core shopper, what are their interests, what are their motivations, what are their outside influences. And through that lens, we design the store experience to really be relatable to that core persona. And so when we think about a shopper mission, we're trying to think about maybe it's a mom planning uh, back to school. She's got two you know, teenage uh, sons, and she's looking to... Um, Uh, shop for them for a back to school. So we're thinking about the core personas of the shopper. What are their typical shopper trip missions? And how can the store be executed in such a way to fulfill on their shopper trip missions? So they they have awesome like phone cases and, you know, journals and things like that. So I I, literally my 17 year old wants to come all the time. Love the mugs. Those are like number one presents for other kids, you know, like, oh yeah, just give them a great anthro mug. So here it just feels like it's maybe skewed a little younger and you know I think I'm young at heart <laughs> so I still like a lot of this stuff but again it's like wow oh, it's just it's just beautiful and like I said this is a brand that makes sense to go to Main Street because it does it does create that it's curated you know it's got that wonderful bohemian feel I think everybody can find something in anthropology it's not like one style but it's one sort of I, I would say like state of mind you know It's hard not to get excited about shopping and design when you tag along with Diane Rambo. Anthropology is a store that suits her tastes to a T. I think if you looked up the personas in Anthropology's playbook, you might see a picture of Diane there. That wasn't the only retail spot that Diane took me to in the short north. Stephanie Mowry, who organized all of the logistics on this podcast and last week's episode, thank you, Stephanie, came along with us on our Short North tour. Here's a thesis for you. The most successful retailers know exactly who their personas are, they lock them in, and then speak directly to them with everything they do. Now, as you're listening, as we continue along the short north, think about who is the target persona for each retailer. So we were really excited to get Warby Parker um, because uh, while they're online and you can get their glasses that way, I love trying them on. So every time I get to New York, I'm like, oh, got to go to Warby Parker and just quickly try on 15 pairs of glasses. Um, I've gone in there like two or three times and don't send me in there today because I'll come out with glasses because I love them, you know. 
I, there are accessories and there are things you want to do. But this is a retailer, I think, that, again, does a good statement. I can see all the way into their store. Um, they're able to sort of, you know, set a tone. If you look at it, they have these beautiful mass sort of murals, and they change. So they always have a promotion going, and typically that promotion is then the, the cloth that you get in your glasses. So they change that. So you actually, I can date my Warby Parker glasses by, by the cloth that I have. This is a cool shop. It's called Big Fun. Um, and this was a group out of Cleveland. They have a store in Cleveland and they uh, expanded to come to Columbus. And it is all retro toys. Um, so you can find that your childhood Lost in Space robot in here. You can, any Pee Wee Herman thing you want, they've got it. I'm just looking at this display window and it's cram packed with non sequiturs of, you know, there's no theme at all. It's like Star Wars next to the Wizard of Oz. McDonald out of Legos, you know. Classic, um, uh, Rudolph the Redness Reindeer. We might have some of that stuff. If you do, and you'll probably want Get anything from Simpsons. This is all Lego figurines. It's just, it's the most fun to come to this store because, because of, like I said, the electric football game you had when you were a kid or um, any of those things. But the candy <laughs> is really, worth the trip itself because you can get baseball cards and retro candy clark bars and zagnut you gotta have lemon heads or pop rocks you know there's et hugging godzilla there's <laughs> all the my little ponies this is an overwhelming amount of pop culture <laughs> it is, oh my it? gosh oh there's a doctor who police call box that's awesome <laughs> i love it i know i was like oh wait you guys have doctor who stuff oh i'm there so we're going right across the street there to Native, um, which is a local juicer. Uh, it's cold-pressed juice. Okay, yeah, we're good this way. Oh, that way. All right, we're good. Yeah, I mean, it's not like there's any record of us uh, breaking the law and jaywalking right. or anything. <laughs> I love strong green, and I currently am really stuck on the green grapefruit, which is a pineapple grapefruit. They have bowls, mm -hmm. which are like an ice cream bowl of fruit. They blend it up, and you can add any of these things in, so peanut butter, hemp seed. The superberry super is, is jumping out at me. You cannot go wrong with the superberry. Acai, banana, strawberries, blueberries. The last time I had a smoothie, I was like, this is awesome. I'm eating smoothies every lunch for the rest of my life. And then an hour later, I'm like, I'm starving. <laughs> That's why I get the protein bite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I keep this. I don't need it now, but you guys can eat yours. It's a power and then it's like that's that's the three o'clock snack. <laughs> so this bowl is lovely. It's a it's a it's a, a ceramic bowl. It's got a purple berry blend in it. A strip of a strip of um, banana slices, and then a the nice little pile of bee pollen. All right, I'm gonna give a, a dig in here real quick and see. I'm gonna have just a bite by itself. Mmm. Oh yeah, you can taste that peanut butter. Mm -hmm. mm. Now I gotta try some bee pollen. Mm. Lovely. All right, well thank you guys so much for, for treating me to a, a walk along the short north. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Stephanie. Any final words for our listeners? No, come back and visit us again. Yeah. <laughs> come to Columbus, that's amazing. All right, awesome. Which retailer is designed to fit your persona? Tell us about it. Leave us a message on the Where We Buy hotline, and we'll use it on an upcoming show. Give us a call at 602-633-4061.
be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. I've got a few events coming up. If you happen to be in Helsinki, Finland on October 10th, I'll be speaking at the Finnish Shopping Center Association. I just uh, checked my statistics. Still no listeners in Finland, but I'm hoping after my visit to Helsinki, I'll have changed all that. I'll be speaking at the Research Connections Conference in Los Angeles. That's October 28th through the 30th. I'll be moderating a panel about virtual reality and digital entertainment. I'll be at the ICSC New York Dealmaking Conference, moderating a panel about how technology is changing the grocery industry. That's uh, December 4th through the 6th at the Javits Center. If you like this podcast, do me a favor, tell a friend about it. If you want to see more retail research, go to jllretail.com and click on Retail Intelligence. You can subscribe to Where We Buy on the iPhone podcast app, on Spotify, or on any podcast app. Tell your Echo to enable the Where We Buy skill. Or visit us on the web at wherewebuy.show. Our theme music is Run in the Night by the Good Lords under Creative Commons license. Thank you.